Hello and welcome to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast, produced by me, Fraser McGrew, for Aleph Insights. In this series of podcasts, we take a look at interesting topics and discuss what we think they tell us about analysis and decision making. I'm here with Nick Hare and Peter Coghill of Aleph Insights and Jerry Smith of CHC Global. And this week, we're discussing the Global Terrorism Database. And unusually, because of another lockdown, uh, we are recording this remotely. Nick, perhaps you could introduce us to Jerry um, and uh, tell us a bit about him and how you know one another. Yeah, well, I met Jerry. Uh, I think Jerry was it the Honourable Artillery Company. We were having it was indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, with a sort of bunch of uh, kind of strange security types who who I meet up with occasionally, um, and uh, we were just having a chat uh, about how the da- like data wasn't used enough in in business and government. It just you know, even though there's lots of good data sets out there, um, it, it just it isn't routinely used anything like as much as it should be. Now that's a common theme, obviously, with us and the podcast. Uh, and I said, I said to Jerry, not knowing anything about him, for example, the Global Terrorism Database, which is one of my favorite databases in the world. It's absolutely amazing. Contains every terrorist attack uh, that recorded since 1970. And uh, Jerry then revealed that he, in fact, um, works for CHC Global, who um, who are the commercial partners to the Stark Consortium, who actually make the uh, global terrorism database so i was like ah okay well that's fantastic and then we met up a few times have got quite a lot in common but vaguely similar backgrounds um so i thought anyway because i love the gtd so much i think it would be great i thought it'd be good to have jerry on to talk a bit more about it and how it's made and you know what it's for brilliant i'm intrigued as to what the honorable artillery company is i think that's what you said but anyway we can come back to that later um jerry can you tell us a little bit more about yourself give us a bit of your history and background Yes, sure. So, um, yeah, as Nick uh, mentioned, I, I met him at the HAC, the Honourable Artillery Company, which is a it's a TA unit in the centre of London. Uh, okay. And uh, yeah, we were having our dinner. Anyway, so my background is a little eclectic. Um, I'm a lot older than you lot. I'm the grey haired one in the uh, in this podcast. Um, but I was originally in the British military in uh, in bomb disposal uh, in mm-hmm. the 90s. Um, I then went into commercial landmine clearance. Um, and then from that, Bizarrely, it took me to DSTL Porton Down, so the Chemical, Biological, um, Radiological um, Defence Establishment, the UK one. Um, it's where we keep the flying saucers as well. We don't have an Area 51 in the UK, so we keep the flying saucers there. Um, and then from that, I ended up in the UN system, working for the Organisation of Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. Um, so you can see there's a bit of a thread there. Uh, and then four or five years ago, I came back from living overseas for a good chunk of time. And... Um, started doing consulting around risk management, um, primarily in the the perils of uh, chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear and explosive effects. Ended up working within the insurance mm. sector and a couple of years ago um, became a partner in a small consulting company and broking company that uh, is right in that sweet spot of, uh, of what they call special risks. So that's terrorism, malicious actors, um, um, kidnap for ransom, that sort of thing. So does that mean that, um, so is that through Lloyd's? Is that how that works or is it independent of that? Well, well Lloyd's is a market. So, you know, it's a collection of where people go to for, for looking at some sort of coverage. Um, Lloyd's mm. is sort of uh, renowned as trying to be able to offer coverage for pretty much any 
peril that somebody mm. comes with. Um, so Lloyd's is one of the markets, but we work with other okay. people as well globally. Great introduction. Thanks very much, Jerry. So um, over to um, you, Nick or Peter. What, what do we want to get from Jerry here? What, we, what do we want to try and achieve in this podcast? What do we want to know about the GTD? Well, I think the, the global terrorism database is uh, very high quality as far as I'm concerned. It's it's um, uh, got about 190,000 terrorist incidents in there, which which stretch back, I think, to, uh, to 1970. Um, and, and, you know, I think like a lot of people, I'm inclined to just use it, right? Just sit there it is, take it as gospel. Um, but I suppose, you know, it'd be interesting to get a sense of how it is actually made. Like, where, how do things get in there? And... Um, you know, and how and how how do all the different fields get populated? Because it describes all kinds of things, like you know the the type of target, the type of weapons used, the you know the and uh, things to do with the group. So I just it's sort of in practice. How does that how does that stuff get in there? Yeah. So the the database has been around since, as you said, the nineteen seventies. Actually, Nick, it's got two hundred thousand entries now since the the latest update. So yeah, we're we're just over that two hundred k mark. Um, and originally it was run by the Rand Corporation. Anyway, it went through a couple of owners until it ended up with the University of Maryland, the Start Center. Um, and they've got a process that they've been running with for quite a few years now, which is an interaction really of, of sort of automatic web scraping, for want of a better word. And we might want to go into a bit more detail on that in a bit. But um, that then ultimately interacts then with their academics um, and there is a sort of a, a, a structured process for identifying, validating, and then, shall we say, measuring the uh, effects, the nature, um, consequences of each terrorism attack. But um, but it, uh, what may, might be quite interesting to kick off with actually is definitions of terrorism, because um, surprise, surprise, there isn't one global definition of terrorism. Um, the GTD has one. Pretty much every country in the world has their own. The UN has um, has a couple. In fact, the UK has got more than one itself. The UK government's got more than one itself. So that's quite an interesting sort of interaction uh, from from the get go, really. Yeah. What's the what? It, so what's the official sort of what does the GTD consider to be a terrorist attack? Yeah. So the GTD's got three criteria that must be kind of present. Um, the the incident must be intentional. Uh, so it has a, you know, a, 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 a must be malicious. Uh, there's got to be either violence or the threat of violence. Um, and the incident has got to be perpetrated by a, a sub-national actor, i.e. not a government. Uh, and we, again, this might be something we want to talk about a bit later, because it is a bit weird when we look at definitions of terrorism now, whether a government can conduct a terrorist act at all. But the GTD, you know, they've stuck to their knitting. This is the definition that they pushed out and, and they run with that. And they also got um, so just uh, just to confirm that. So this would imply, for example, if that if ISIS, um, you know, were recognised as an official government for for whatever reason in an unusual parallel universe, that they would no longer be capable of terrorism. It would just be normal state based warfare or something. According to the GTD, yeah, then that would potentially then fall outside their definition, and therefore, their any attacks that they conducted, if it was confirmed that it was them. Hmm. Um, then that potentially could then fall outside the GTD. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. So it is. I mean, I yeah. think the key thing there is that it really it isn't to do with the nature of the act, which is what I think a lot of people might instinctively think is um, terrorism is defined by a certain kind of activity and not necessarily by the actors. But actually, I think you know probably that's a much harder thing to define to se separate it from warfare. But their definition, presumably, I mean, I mean, presumably that's pretty 
it's pretty clear is it is that is it is that because it's fairly easy to measure that, that you know whether or not these criteria are true yeah well I, I think the issue is is that you know they 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 needed to have a definition they need to have you know what's going to be in the box and what's going to be out and 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 particularly as an academic approach we've quite rightly so is that you know you've got to have that those kind of criteria now they might shift and you make a conscious decision to change aspects but they felt that this is this provides consistency um, I mean, they've got some criteria as well that they add into that. So as well as those sort of three key elements, they've got um, criteria, which um, the broad one is around aim about attaining political, economic, religious or social goal of some sort. Um, one is around intention. So the intention to sort of coerce and intimidate. Um, and the third one has got to be illegal as well. So it, it and I don't mean um, in kind of domestic law, but in kind of international terms as well. So um, uh, because, of course, you know, bizarrely, in the world, we have legal forms of warfare, legal ways of killing each other, which seems a bit odd. But that's the way, you know, international relations has, has evolved over the last century and a half. Um, so there is, there is a series of, of, um, uh, of as I said, elements that are, must be included. And then criteria, two of those three criteria must be included as well. And then they have this really neat thing as well called the, the doubt terrorism proper. And what that means is that even though you might meet all those criteria, um, there is something about the attack that might also fall into some other definition. So uh, uh, what they call a definition overlap, whether that's insurgency or hate crime, organized right. crime. So yeah. you've got this kind of um, ability to even still filter out. So what they try and do is, is, you know, not have so much of the rubbish. Well, they have all the rubbish on the cutting room floor, but the kind of credible events they want to try and keep in there. And what you can do, because it is a database, you can just turn off, you know, the doubt terrorism right. um, proper uh, switch if you want and, and reduce your, uh, re reduce your kind of fields um, to more narrow definition. And I think the, the, what's good about the GTD definition is it's very clear and transparent. And, you know, as you say, it gives it that consistency, which means that you, you can be reasonably confident. You know, you know that if you're looking at something from 1975, it is using the same definition as something from last year. And, um, and I think that that's very important with data, you know, it's to, to understand not just, um, you know what it says at face value but the process whereby it's been generated yeah um but, and of course it's a really tough tough one um because you know the, the nature of terrorism has shifted um uh, if you look at sort of you know 30, 20 30 years ago again in oecd nations they were looking at big vehicle bombs blowing up trying to hit economic targets you look at it in the last sort of five years or so and there's been the shift to sort of low technology blades as weapons you know marauding uh, knife attack or using a vehicle as a weapon lower tech stuff and just sort of indiscriminately killing people and so you know you, as those shifts occur and particularly as you start to get you know the, the the internet of course starts to blur definitions as well of what's a state actor or a non-state actor and then you've got you know a state supported actor or a state authorized actor you know the, the graying of those those situations mean that um, you know, straight definitions may not hold water, but I think what the GTD is trying to do is 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 maintain that that structure, um, so you get you do get that consistency. But it'll always throw up some some controversies. Peter, what would you like to ask Jerry? Uh, so so Jerry, so uh, presumably the, the people who run the GTD that you've you mentioned already, but they 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 go to great pains to make sure that there's a sort of standard approach and a standard methodology that goes way back to the seventies. Presumably, that's quite a sort of 
organizational procedural challenges. You know, people have their career retire, new people come on board, the team changes, grows, whatever. Are there any kind of like key lessons that you, you've you've kind of spotted from from running the from being involved with running the DTD about how they go about doing that? Yeah, so I think um, I mean we're incredibly lucky to have to have hooked up with these guys. Um, you know, this relatively small limey company the other side of the pond um but what we certainly recognize with them is that they the, the the consistency and the approach that they've carried on and i mean the gtd costs a couple of million dollars a year to run um and it is um, historically been supported by the u.s government and their intent has then uh, for academics then to use it um for, for for research and what we've done over the last uh, year or so is support them as the US funding has been, US government funding has been slightly more variable. We've sort of come on board to to, to sort of commercialize a little more. But the process they actually um, go through is is quite interesting. So they've got, I wouldn't say really advanced machine learning and artificial intelligence, but essentially they're scraping the internet every day for around 2 million articles using kind of keywords. Um, that search ends up um, looking at around about 200,000 articles a month of which around 7% are potentially relevant to terrorist attacks. Um, and then they will, we, we, we will then look at how they can populate their fields. So they've got about 120 odd fields and, you know, they're from the very basic, the lat long, you know, the location of the event itself, um, uh, the type of attack, as Nick mentioned, you know, the weapon used, the suspected perpetrator, perhaps the number of fatalities, the number of is injured. They might talk about damage, um, so there's a there's a whole set of criteria, but as you start to get into the more detail and nuance, as you can imagine, when you're effectively using the internet as your source, uh, mm. when you get more into the detail and the nuance, that tends to fall away from things like popular news sites. And of course, <laughs> into the mix, you've got to throw in, and this is probably one of the reasons why AI, AI really isn't quite mature enough to, to, to handle this yet, things like social media. Uh, and it goes from sort of basic things. So, you know, you don't want to pick up a website that talks about shooting because, in fact, you're talking about soccer or basketball. You mm. don't want to, um, uh, you know, you, you don't want to talk about an explosive because, in fact, it's talking about a great new album that um, I was going to say LP there, but you probably don't know what they are, do you? Um, <laughs> we did a podcast uh, about Peter, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about Peter, but me and Nick do. <laughs> But I, I mean, studied them in a museum once. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've, you know, there's uh, they, the, the machine sort of works through felt, filters, natural language processing, and to some sort of machine learning. But ultimately, mm -hmm. then, what's left is goes to what I broadly call some committees. And um, if the GT guys are listening now, they'll they'll probably be um, their, their toes will be curling. But yeah, broadly, they are. I say there's a sort of matrix committees, so they'll have people that are specializing in, in a region, and they'll look at the, the data for that region. You'll have people that are looking at, for example, weapon types. So they'll be focusing on certain weapon types. And you'll have a committee that's looking at perpetrators, for example. There are a few more as well. But essentially, you have this kind of matrix of, of looking at those reportings from a sort of a number of lenses. And ultimately, then you get to this kind of committee of committees where they'll sit round and discuss each event and and almost by a sort of jury service decide whether it's in or not now that is you know in some ways well i was to say inefficient that's the wrong word what it is using is it, it is using the significant academic horsepower that the university of maryland has to extract you know a lot of the um the, the, or get rid of all the chaff and look at just the key elements and then make those decisions based yeah. on those criteria 
Yeah. So, I mean, I think it, everything you said I, just speaks to the, the kind of perennial problem with data, especially when you're collecting data about the real world and real world things. It's difficult. It's complicated, expensive and messy because the real world is all of those things. Um, I mean, the, the, the fact that it costs, it's two, two, roughly $2 million per year to run the GTD for 200,000 entries. That's that's ten, $10 per entry per year, essentially. Well, it's not $2 million per year, though. It's uh, Sorry, 200,000 entries per year. That's all of it ever. Yeah, so. yeah, but maintenance of those 200,000. Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, it's it's that 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 the, 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 so the ten dollars per sort of record. That's um, when you think about all the data that flies around on the internet. Much lower quality, much lower fidelity, much less you know potentially less a, a different kind of data, a very different sort of flavor of data. But I mean, but it, it's interesting how the the production uh, of the GTD has changed. You know, the, with the, it started before the internet was a thing, um, before AI was a thing. So the, 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 there must have been a significant challenge in maintaining a sort of qu standard quality, standard definition uh, through it, th as, as the process has sort of changed. But I think that's probably handled by these, this highly manual process at the quality end, the, the quality checking end um, to, to decide what actually is, what qualifies, what doesn't qualify, and then how to measure it is all very conversational between experienced academics yeah absolutely absolutely i mean there's there's a sort of a dozen or so um full-time staff um off and on working on this on the, on this project and then you've got kind of postgrads and interns and all sorts and of course particularly the beauty of technology now um you know you, you don't have to be those those virtual committees you know exist virtually so they can work on that i think what's interesting with the gtd and i mean there are other databases out there there are some sort of commercial ones um but what the GTD, if, if, if it's coming for criticism, it's around its timeliness. So it still does does publish on a sort of a, a year hence. So it's always looking at the previous layers database. And that's really a function of the fact that because you've got this manual element to it, um, you know, the, the, the December, if, if we're going to talk sort of calendar months, it, the, the December data is still going to be processed. I mean, the January data you know that's been that that will have been squared away but rather than having this sort of incremental um deployment of the database you know it's it's being looked at on an annual basis um, and that's something that you know they're looking at into the future but it 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 that that balance between you know timeliness thoroughness and volume mm. is 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 a bit of an interaction that is um that, you know, that is always a challenge um and, and 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 you know that's where they're working at and you know let's not forget most governments, if not all governments, use the GTD as as being one of their primary open source databases. So, you know, it it must be doing something right. Otherwise, governments wouldn't be wouldn't be using it and funding it. But I, I think just the, the what Jerry's talking about about the, that process of how they collect the data, and I think this is tells you something interesting, not just about the GTD, but things that people should bear in mind when they when they're dealing with any uh, data set, particularly if it's about these complex kind of things. You know, if it's not highly measurable where your mobile phone is is highly measurable you can automate that it's very very hard to automate these things that involve interpreting real world events and um if you look at for example um as as jerry said you know the 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 collection has has moved over time to be something that's much more automated well obviously we're going to be picking things up 
uh, that we wouldn't have picked up if they'd happened in the 1970s. Some event somewhere which wouldn't have even been noticed or made the papers and now doesn't really any longer exist. So we know that there must have been an increase in the number of events being collected. And uh, you can't within a database actually, you know, necessarily separate that from, um, you know, from an increase in terrorism. So that's that's something that, you know, people need to bear. Even there's a very uh, high quality collection process. Um, you know, there, there is still going to be any change in that sampling process is going to affect um, what looks like a trend within the data. Um, and and I've also was quite interested looking at the number of deaths, which is something that's recorded, uh, obviously, as, as part of the um, it, within the GTD um, that you can see rounding occurring. And, and, and obviously, that's because you've only got the reports to work on. Um, so, for, so there are big spikes at terrorist attacks that kill, for example, 30 people and 40 people and 50 people. Far fewer appear to kill 49 or 51 people. Well, that's obviously the data. That's the way it's reported. Right. It's going to be reported as 50 people people even if it's 51 and and interestingly the lo the lowest number of people that no terrorist attack has ever killed is apparently 99 um so there's no one no terrorist attack has ever killed 99 people uh, within the gtd but 31 have killed 100 people and only seven have killed sounds like an engagement people. challenge well exactly so i think uh, well let's, let's hope people don't take it as such it sounds yeah. like you only want to get on trains or planes yeah. that have got 99 passengers well on, that's so it. so the um yeah. So, I mean, that that tells you something important, you know, which is that we're dealing with the GTD can only be as good as the information it's got. And, you know, there's going to be rounding, as you'd expect. Um, Sorry, so, yeah, I just no, jump in there. I mean, that's that is really interesting. I think and you're right. It's an absolute function of the reporting. But it also brings, again, highlights the sort of nuances of this. So, you know, define a fatality in an event. Is that the number of people that die on the scene within the first 10 minutes? Uh, or is it the number of people that die that are recorded as a result of that death a month later who people have died from their wounds or, you know, so there's, I mean, you're absolutely, I'm not, uh, you're absolutely right. There, there is that rounding element, which I'm, I'm sure is a function of essentially news reporting. Um, but there is that also that nuance of accuracy that may be around the timeliness of things. Yeah, no, I, I, I think I, it's just worth sort of or that people who use data just need to understand that at the other end of this data, there is this process. I think a lot of people and I, I come from a background where, you know, I've used data all, all my working life um, and including having done data entry, you know, in, as a to top up my income at university. And, um, you know, at the end of it all, there's there's someone like me you know, making a decision about what to put down, you know, so it's sort of, okay, this report says 52, this one says, uh, you know, 48, what should we put? Well, to, well let's put 50, you know. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I think it's also worth, worth I, I haven't mentioned the rest of the work of, of START, but um, it might be worth, I mean, I, I, I'd say they are, as far as I'm concerned, the, really the most reliable um, a, a source of analysis about um, about terrorism, uh, because the GTD is only one of the databases that they 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 run. They they have other very detailed databases about different types of extremism, and um, it's really notable when you see what they put out that everything is clearly stated hypotheses tested with data um you know it isn't that narrative driven stuff which you often get when you get academics talking about terrorism and it's all kind of narrative and case study this is they're really really good um and jerry i just wonder is there is it worth mentioning some of the other uh some of the sort of general work of of the start consortium yeah, well, the guys um, uh, again. We, the, the work that we are building with them, and we've we've got a you know we're looking at a long term relationship with these guys. But I mean, they have another number of databases. They've got one that looks at um, 
chemical, biological, radiological attacks in terrorism. Um, as you can might imagine, that database is somewhat smaller than 200,000 entries, um, and it is pretty specific. They've got one they're running um, at the moment as well, which is all around um, physical consequences of a cyber attack. And that's certainly something mm. from sort of my professional background, we're looking at uh, more and more interest now. The, so the consequence of, you know, these so-called SCADA systems or in, industrial control systems where, you know, if you were able to take control of a, you know, a, a valve in a, in a factory that had a hazardous material on, could you, could you open it and let a, you know, an uncontrolled release? Yeah. Ultimately, you know, we hear these stories of things like, you know, could you get on the Wi-Fi of an aircraft with your laptop and take control of the aircraft systems. I think we're, you know, potentially a bit further away from that. But certainly, um, you know, the, G- the 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 start guys are looking at that. So this unconventional weapons approach is another thing. I mean, they also have contracts where they're looking purely for the U.S. government on U.S. government issues. And again, I don't want to, you know, labour the point with the U.S. But clearly, they have some some unique situations around. Um, you know, far right, far left extremism, uh, as well as, um, you know, the, the issue of things like militias and that sort of thing. So there, there, there's a whole scope of things that they, they also do other than the GTD, as well as, you know, other specific research. Um, and I'm even down to things like, you know, um, doing, uh, doing crisis management scenario stuff. They've got a whole set there that, that, that run government departments through crises um, uh, that, that can they inject you know real world data into in, into a scenario well I, I was going to give some examples of interesting interesting things in the gtd so if that's that sort of moves it on i think towards the end so if peter's got something more sort yeah. of procedurally yeah more, uh, another, yeah thanks yeah thanks nick another very procedurally question uh, <laughs> I, I being the engineer I'm, I'm very interested in how this whole data thing is produced and how the quality is maintained but i mean are, are there any um historic examples um Jerry, of how perhaps the GTD has tried, has sort of wanted to or had to adopt a new field or uh, adjust its definition and then revisit the entire data set to, to make sure that it rain, maintains sort of current or relevant or useful. I'm thinking because if you, when you, if you set a definition of terrorism back in the 70s, what, what you were talking, uh, what you sort of was recognized as terrorism there now is possibly has diverged from that definition somewhat. So when you were trying to market and sell a database uh, to analysts, to decision makers saying, we can tell you about terrorist attacks in, in historical terrorist attacks, they, they may have a different notion of what terrorism means to them. Is, is, are there any examples of where additional fields have been retrospectively added or changed? Yeah, so absolutely. So the the every year, uh, well, there's two elements to that, really. <clears throat> First thing is that once they push the data out, uh, once they put it out on an annual basis, which essentially is just a giant Excel spreadsheet, um, they can have the position to sort of update it. But in that, uh, within the year, as it were, if new information comes, comes uh, in, into light, but within uh, the annual updates, they also have this code book, which they publish every every year. And any changes to fields, and they might change it. Um, they might, um, and I can't I can't remember specifics now. But in the last couple of years, they have, you know, they've broken out definitions. So you've got a different field for a weapon type, for example, or they have they've narrowed that definition somewhat. Um, for whatever reason, you know, and and sometimes it might just be for the fact that you know common terms are, are going out of use. Um, mm. So you know yeah that that's the sort of thing that they can that they are flexible in that um but i think more importantly they're transparent about it as well Hmm. which as an analyst is incredibly important you need to understand 
how your data was collected, what processes it went through before you actually start using it. Otherwise, it's a, mm. it's, it's much less useful. You can only you can only, you, you have to caveat your 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 work much more heavily. No, absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, the they, the code book they push out annually is sixty odd pages, and it's a good read actually in itself. It's quite interesting discussion of uh, terrorism. So I've got a few interesting things which I've looked at, and it's interesting. Jerry mentioned that that sort of distinction. The US ha- does have quite a unique profile. Um, so uh, we can. Um, uh, re- I'm reluctant to make light of uh, terrorism, but um, uh, we could do this as a sort of quiz. So if we think of the main categories of terrorist groups right jerry i feel like you might be cheating if you join in but do feel free um uk what's the most prolific uh type of terrorism in the uk now this is a classification that i've so i think i know this i think go on then have a, have a pop i think it's probably animal rights protests ah interesting uh because you've missed a really really obvious thing that we all grew up with um, so you're talking about uh, Northern Ireland still, no? Uh, would it be sort of sectarian parts? Yeah, yeah it's, it's sort of Irish, Irish uh, yeah. sectarianism. Animal rights, as you say, are the second most prolific category of terrorist attack in the UK, but they've never killed a single person. Mm. Um, the, the average IRA attack killed mm. three quarters of a person. So, in a, well, the average terrorist attack actually kills two, about two and a half, 2.4 people on average. But just over half of terrorist attacks don't kill anyone at all. Um, so, yeah. And then then the the uh, fourth most um, most prolific uh, terrorist attackers in the UK are the right right wing groups. And then the fifth most are Welsh nationalists. But again, they've never killed anyone. So um, very interesting. Obviously, you don't get so many Welsh and Irish nationalists in the US, although there, there have been a couple of IRA attacks in the US. Um, so uh, the in terms of deadliness, even though the Irish uh, groups are more prolific, the deadliest um, category are Islamists. Islamists really know what they're doing in the terrorism department. The average Islamist terrorist attack kills kills between four and five people in the UK. There have been 23 attacks and and they've killed about 100 people. The US, quite different. What would you say the number one category of terrorism since 1970 has been in the in the US? I'm going to take a guess here. Is it right wing extremists? It's actually left wing extremists. Is it? <laughs> yeah, the most prolific, but by very low deadliness. Average left wing terrorist attack. So these are all those 1970s weird groups like the Symbionese Liberation Army and, and that kind of thing. Mm. Um, and then uh, the third most prolific, weirdly, is what I've classed as sort of broadly Hispanic, which seems to be kind of proxy uh, sort of. Hispanic politics from different bits of Central America playing out in the US. And then you have uh, right wing. Number number five, the fifth most prolific category is something which I think we think of as probably pretty unique to the US. Um, and it's a, a hot button culture war issue. Is it the anti or pro gun lobby people? No, no, it's actually abortion. Uh, oh, right. Yeah, of course. And then you have uh, a bunch of other. Um, Interesting. Black black nationalists are up there. Um, actually, J- Jewish uh, sort of Jewish Defense League people um, and uh, environmentalists. Uh, Islamists are just outside the top ten in terms of, uh, or just within the top ten in terms of um, how prolific they are. But of course, because of nine one one nine eleven, 
they're by far and away the deadliest. Yeah. So average Islamist mm. attack um, has killed 50 people. But of course, that's primarily 9-11. So in terms of um, the types of attacks, if we look at that, like the number, the, the sorry, the weapons, the weapon, weapon type that's used. Um, what do you think the most deadly type of weapon to use in a terrorist attack is? And I'm, by the way, I'm ruling out vehicle attacks because that includes September the 11th, which would put it way in the lead but apart from so apart from that what do you what do you guys think the the most the deadliest probably type? something fairly up close and personal like knives it's gonna be like a knife or a handgun or something so is it, yes it is firearms so so that's why you know i think te um those terrorism people uh do do worry about the, the marauding firearms attack as being one of the deadliest types mm -hmm. and we've seen that played out um the uh melee weapons are actually Pretty, the average melee weapon attack, um, which I guess is primarily knives, uh, kills 0.6 people. So, you know, still pretty deadly. Um, if you want to make a point but not kill that many people, the incendiary weapon is the way to go. Uh, there have mm. been about 1,700 incendiary weapon attacks, but only 50, 53 deaths in the yeah. US. In, I'm sorry, I don't know. Maybe I've not looked at the data. Presumably you can see the improvement in fire safety standards of in in public buildings played yeah, out it's probably worth saying before we get onto those last questions for jerry that, that a bit like nick ross in crime watch um that the number of people killed by terrorism was the highest in 2014 50 000 people worldwide but that only makes it about as deadly as snakes and we don't have a global war on snakes and snakes don't affect don't affect people's travel plans. And so, you know, please do sleep well, as they say. Nick, I, I, can I just jump in on some of those things there? I think that's really interesting. And, and I think what that does is highlight, you know, the frequency severity issue as a thing is quite interesting. Yeah. Um, and, and the dangers of averaging very quickly um, uh, become apparent. Yeah. Um, so, and then as around sort of deaths, as you said, 2014, 2015, the vast majority of those were in about, three or four countries who can, we can kind yeah. of guess where they were you strip mm. those out um and then you sort of see people on the news and this is where you know it's data really has its place to, and I'm, I'm preaching to the converted here obviously but it has its you know its role to play is to try and counter the narrative that 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 headlines are picked up of you know 2014 deadly and yet so that average you talk about with snakes i think if you put that into the uk you're more likely to die in the bath than you are from terrorism. Mm. Um, okay, so I just wanted to draw things to a close. It's, it's a shame because I feel that we've barely even sort of uh, touched the surface of this and I just feel, you know, we could just keep on going with this all day. Um, but nonetheless, uh, we need we do need to wrap it up. Um, well, you're the one who's do, stopping us, Fraser. I know, it is me, isn't it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, there's a couple of questions, Jerry, that I want to ask you. Nothing to do with GTD, nothing at all to do with that, but a couple of things that intrigue me. There's one question which I always ask our guests, but there's another one, which is, um, I think you're the first, uh, this is the first time I've met um, a, a bomb disposal expert, uh, which is very exciting for me, uh, since my most of my knowledge of bomb disposal comes from watching The Hurt Locker, um, which I didn't like very much, that film, actually. I and I'm sure I'm sure bomb disposal experts around the world just tutting away at all sorts of stuff in it. But my question to you is this: This is my first question: Is what, can you tell me in the in the world of of bomb disposal or being a, a bomb disposal expert, what could you tell us about the job that would perhaps be most surprising to someone like myself, a layperson in this area who knows nothing about it? What's the most surprising thing about the role? That you, 
Well, I tell you what, um, I will use the Hurt Locker for this. Uh, by the way, I hate okay. the term expert, but uh, we'll run with it. Um, okay. Do you remember the scene right at the end when he stood in the supermarket staring at the choice he's got of food? I don't, actually. But, okay. but so I... It's right at the end. It's a really benign scene. So you've seen all the, the running around and the explosions and the gunfights and the helicopters and the this, that and the other and the cutting the red and blue wires, uh, which I thought was the question you were going to ask me, which colour do you cut? Um, and of course, that's a secret. Um, um, but no, he's standing there in the in the supermarket looking at the benign. And I think that the, the times that I've been away and done some, um, you know, sometimes let's you know, let's let's be honest here. It's been quite scary. Um, actually, when you step out of that scary piece and then come back, it's that um, it's that transition uh, to, to normality. Um, and yeah, sorry, this is getting very heavy and deep now, <laughs> slightly different from data. Yeah. I'd say that would be the most surprising thing is that, you know, the, I suppose the other thing you'd see on the Hurt Locker is that everything's done at quite a lot of speed. So if you can slow stuff down, that's always good. Um, um, mm. but yeah, I would say it's stepping away from, you, you can quite rapidly be fr transitioning from something that's really, really scary into something mm. quite mundane. And that mm. sort of adjustment that you make is quite, uh, can, can be quite a transition. Interesting. And I suspect, I wonder if it's the same, I'm sure it is. Um, but again, you would know better than me for, you know, other parts of the military and that, that sort of thing. I suspect it might be similar. Yeah, I don't know. yeah, I guess so. Maybe yeah. it's more yeah. acute. Maybe there are higher pressures. I, I, I don't know. Well, I think, um, sorry, just very quickly, it depends what situation you're talking about. So the Hurt Locker mm. was, um, so I didn't deploy doing EOD in a, what you'd call a kinetic environment. So when there's, you know, there's lots of shooting going on there. My EOD tended to be in kind of minefields or, you know, in the UK where mm. you're in a slightly more stable situation so you don't have that you might have the imperative time but you don't have that imperative people shooting at you um gotcha. so I, I couldn't comment on that there's far braver people than me that do that right <laughs> or have done that um and um so my second question I, I guess it sort of relates a little bit had, had you not had the career that you've had which as you said is you know it's been very eclectic and yeah what, what would you what would you have done had you not gone down that path what what's the alternative career for Jerry Smith? What do you think is the in that other universe that Jerry Smith would be doing? Goodness me, I have no idea. I have absolutely no idea. I mean, I trained as a mining engineer. <laughs> I've never done a day's paid work down a mine or in a quarry. I think you ended up looking at the wrong kind of mine, Jerry. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, I signed up. Yeah, I saw that. I signed up, and lo and behold, yeah, it's too late by then. <laughs> yeah it's too late to say anything at that point to say hold on mine what's this um okay okay uh look um unfortunately yeah we do have to, to finish there um so that was absolutely fascinating i really really enjoyed that so um so yeah suffice to say um thank you as always for listening to the cognitive engineering podcast um uh we've been here with nick Hare and peter coghill of aleph insights but a special thank you uh to jerry smith of chc global for providing us with your time and your expertise and your insights thank you as always uh, for listening to the cognitive engineering podcast until next time goodbye mm -hmm.